So um, again, apologies. I didn't. I didn't really uh, have time to order these questions uh, uh, into some sort of um, logical thread. So uh, let's see <coughs> uh, what we can do anyway. Um, Not strictly on topic, but I'd love to hear your thoughts at some point. You've both emphasized the importance of the two-ness. On many occasions prior to the retreat, an image of an adventurer slash warrior or samurai would arise. There would be two-ness, but often at some point we would merge for a while. I would normally enter them, as it were, and then become very active slash fighting, jumping, etc., etc., with lots of energy arising in my chest. <laughs> yeah, um, it's back on. That was what was happening with the old one. It was just cutting on and off, so... Uh, slashing, fighting, jumping, etc., etc., with lots of energy arising in my chest and through my body. Uh, at times, I'd be fighting soldiers. We would then eventually unmerge. Uh, any issues, concerns with this merging? Um, no. Uh, in sometimes it's hard to find the words for these. Uh, you know, the different elements of the teaching. So um, there's, there's at least two reasons why we go on and on about this Tunis business, okay? One is, um, actually, One aspect of what we're calling tunus is really about the balance of attention when you're you're uh, working with an image, but also or, or in a dyad with another person. And uh, as we've touched, and as many of you know, what can often happen is that uh, we're not very free or flexible within that dyad, within that balance of attention. Um, when, uh, when there's when there's two, so particularly in human relationships, and again we haven't talked about it so so much on the, uh, yet in the teachings, we haven't put this out there, but there's a whole you could say body of teachings about uh, practicing live in real time with someone else, and uh, becoming image for each other in in the moment. And uh, with all the eros and, and sharing that and, and handling that very carefully in a very formal way with boundaries, etc. Um, but even, uh, and again, on this retreat, we haven't done much, uh, if, if any, but uh, the last couple of retreats, we were doing quite a few exercises where people were in groups of twos or threes um, uh, b sharing in, in real time what was happening energetically, emotionally, and then also if they wanted to share an image, which might have been something that happened yesterday, uh, an image that touched them deeply, something that happened yesterday, or something that uh, was actually present right then as they were speaking. And so part of the reason we harp on about this tunus is that uh, in, in those kind of situations, Something, it, it can be very tricky for, for us as human beings in this culture especially to 
to uh, be in that relationship, be in that dyad or, or whatever it is, or with more people, in a way that's actually fertile, that's not closed down, that doesn't kind of lose myself because I'm over there, or withdraw uh, 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 over here, or some, some other uh, piece of my uh, aspect of my experience just shuts down. It, it becomes inaccessible, short-circuited, something or other hard. And so w one piece of what we're calling tunus is uh, uh, about that skill in, in twos or skill in relationship with other. And one of the basic skills of that whole range of skills is just, uh, can I have <coughs> both my experience and the experience of the other? How fully can I enter into uh, the openness of relationship and relational possibility there? And it sounds really basic, but actually most of you know how difficult it is. You know, what happens, and <coughs> especially if, when the person's looking at you, to be seen so, so directly, so intently, so uh, upfront like that. So that's one of the reasons we, we uh, talk about tunas, uh, or rather what we're pointing to with tunas and, and the practice of tunas. That's not really what the note's talking about. The other is that eros needs tunas, okay? Eros needs, eros involves uh, uh, what we might call an erotic tension, okay? So some people define eros as the, the movement or the wish to merge, to unite, to, to, to become one. Uh, and and in, in the Western canon tradition, that's a, that's a long-standing uh, definition of what eros is. Um, we're defining it somewhat differently, and it might all sound like nitpicking or quite subtle, but as I said, the differences in the, the realms that will open up are huge. So when we talk about eros, there is an attraction, so there is some kind of movement towards, but the two-ness is retained so that it's like two poles of a magnet that are attracted, but don't, but are somehow held apart. So there's a tension there. And with that, there's some discomfort. If, if the poles of the magnet collapse, you lose the tension. I mean, the physic, physics analogy melt, m breaks down. But if you're in oneness, there's nothing, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no poles of the eros. Do you understand? So, um, w and, and what, what happens when, when there's merging and union, etc., is uh, there's a, a, a dissolving, a dissolution, a fading of particulars. Everything merges into one something or other, whatever that one something or other is. One being with a capital B, one awareness, one love, one whatever. It's wonderful. And of course, in the, in the range of mystical experience that's available to human beings, that, that, that's, you know, to taste that, to know that, to be comfortable with it, to dip in and out of that, priceless. Um, most spiritual teachings will tend towards that, will, will point towards that and even raise it up as the sort of the highest possibility for a human being, etc. I think what we want to say is that's great and wonderful and uh, we could talk a lot about that. You'll find many teachings about that um, from uh, that I've given and other, many other teachers have given. It's great, but there's a whole other avenue of uh, realm of possibilities that opens up when the two-ness is preserved and that erotic tension is preserved uh, that would otherwise collapse or get dissolved in this oneness. So when we come to that uh, element of the imaginal, the, um, the, the, the two, what we're calling tunas, I would also add the words um, particularity um, or retaining particularities. So in this instance, the person 
uh, the, the, the meditator is becoming the image. So you think, well, where's, where's the two-ness? I'm not two with the image. I've become the image. I've merged. It's, that, it's not a problem at all. And this is quite a, a common uh, way for images to arise. Rather than there being other, they become, we enter them, or they enter us, and we become them. What is still preserved, though, is particularity. So it's not that you, this, uh, in this instance that the person enters, enters this samurai or this warrior and then everything just goes blank. Uh, the, the samurai or the warrior still has particularities, still, is still differentiable from the environment, from the other soldiers they're fighting. Um, they probably have certain characteristics, look a certain way, feel a certain way, have a certain character, etc. So it's really that that we're pointing to. And the actual locus of the self-sense uh, when we're practicing magic it doesn't really matter. Yeah, so not, not really any, any issues at all. Perhaps if, if you find in your practice that it's always... I am becoming image, or I am entering an image, or it's always other, then you might deliberately want to experiment whatever the, the, the complement to that is. So um, retaining uh, the image as other, um, and just play with being more deliberate about that, just to see what happens. Or... Um, or or the other way around, you know, if, uh, if, if it's always other, it might be interesting to enter the image and become the image and see the world through, through the, the perspective and the experience of that, of that imaginal being. Um, there's little tricks to do that. I was talking with someone earlier, I can't remember, but... If the image is, is other, is sort of over there, then... Um, sometimes looking deeply into its eyes, uh, you can ent- enter it. You enter through its eyes. It's a little trick. Um, and sometimes curiously uh, feeling into what the small of its back might feel like is another curious one that can kind of put you in its body. Why that works, I have no idea. <laughs> um, but these are, these are just little little technical tricks. But the main point is, yeah, if you find it's always one or the other, it might be interesting to explore. And then we had a question as well where there was this self and other, but that could become, uh, they could become two others for a third that is the witness of that. And so there's all kinds of possibilities and, th- and they're, all, they're all good and, and you should feel free uh, to... Uh, is there any sort of eros in imaginal practice to be wary of? I am thinking of an image I had this morning that became eros for the self by the image of the self, if that makes sense. Is there any risk that this could become vanity or narcissism? Thanks. So, uh, no. Um, In other words, uh, we're, we're probably used to feeling nervous about all this stuff around the object. In other words, what the object is. It's my, I don't know, girlfriend's mother, so that's a bit weird, you know, or whatever. Um, uh, or it's myself, so isn't that e- egotistical? Or, you know, s- something that seems like, how can you have Eros for something that most people would regard as completely insignificant. I don't know, uh, could be anything, you know, a glass of water. Um, we're, we're mostly used to getting nervous about the object, like that object's okay, but that one's not. I would, I would say any object can become problematic as, a, as, a, as an erotic object, uh, and can be entirely unproblematic. It's not in the in the nature of the object. Um, okay.
So, is, it, is that okay? How's that? Yeah? About to feedback. It's about to feedback. Yeah, a bit, bit lower. Um, so, um, what, what if we... Okay. Take four. Okay. All right. So, um, is there any sort of eros in imaginal practice to be wary of? I'm thinking of an image I had this morning that became eros for the self by the image of the self, if that makes sense. Is there any risk that this could become vanity or narcissism? So, this, uh, this follows on from other, other questions we've had, right? We, we talked a bit about, about this, right? Um, I would say no, and we, that we tend to get nervous around certain objects being taboo. Uh, you know, in the Christian tradition, to have uh, Jesus as an object of eros uh, was completely taboo for most of the mainstream, but there were contemplatives who uh, were deep into that practice of having Jesus as an object. It wasn't taboo at all. If we if we take this question and we replace eros with meta as a parallel question, what would you say? Right. But you know, uh, meta. Uh, when I started insight meditation, no one was practicing meta in the eighties. All kinds of people, including myself, had kind of. Um, apocalyptic thermonuclear explosive experiences that were really unhelpful and um, that actually lasted quite a long time and then uh, I moved out of the scene for a while a lot of therapy other, other practices etc um, came back and metta was a mainstream thing as part of the insight meditation people had realized oh this is really important and, and in teaching metta, what they'd also realized is in the West, how important the metta to the self was. At that time, when people were introducing metta to the self, people were saying, well, well, well isn't that a bit dangerous? Aren't you going to get self-consumed and self-love? That's not a very good thing, you know, etc. Just the same. It's just the same. We're just not used to thinking this way. And as I said, I can't even remember now when it came up, we're talking about uh, we, we're got a fractured, confused, um, uh, Ill, ill-educated relationship uh, and idea with, with self in our society. Um, so that something like this feels dangerous and something about recognizing uh, the the divinity of myself in my particularities, the my necessity uh, to God, my necessity to the divine. It's not just that I am one drop in an, in an ocean of divine light or whatever, just like every other drop. It is that. That's great. That's wonderful. Super and great to be able to know that and explore that. But to know this being in my particularities as divine, as angel, with all the eros there. It's just, we just, it's just not uh, a, a, a concept that, that is supported in the culture. So the problem is not in the object of eros, whatever that object is. Um, the problem is uh, potentially 
when that ear, when uh, those, if we, if we translate it into the elements of the imaginal, the nodes of the lattice, it's when those switch off, or some of those switch off, and eros becomes craving, and the imaginal middle way uh, disappears into some kind of reification, etc. Uh, et when there's no humility, when there's no uh, open-endedness of things, when there's not loose and elastic edges, all, all these, that would be the problem. So in other words, it's not the object, any object of Eros that's potentially a problem, it's, it's if you like, the, the, the kind of Eros, we could say, or it's what's with the Eros, what's in the, rela- in the field, in the relationship of that Eros. Does it make sense? It's, it's really, really important. So that's a good way. You will doubt all this stuff. Believe me, you're going you're to lots of doubt will come up, etc. But something that may help is just make a parallel question with meta. Just and just, uh, you know. Um, so no, there's no risk. Well, or rather, there is a risk, but it's not because the self is the object of of eros and 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 has become a beloved, uh, a divine beloved. Uh, other, it's that. Uh, the eros shrinks, or gets r- something gets rarefied, or, or this or that. Yeah. <coughs> uh, would you say that, on some level, the imaginal practice could be seen as a method of inquiry or contemplation, and/or a way of gradually sanctifying selves, world, worlds, cosmos? thinking of the alchemical vessel and contemplation in mystical Kabbalah. Um, I would absolutely say that the whole point, the whole main point of, for me, of imaginal practice, above healing, above uh, reclaiming one's sexuality, above all of that um, is is a way of gradually sanctifying selves, worlds, cosmos. That's absolutely the point, yeah. Um, anything else is kind of secondary, I guess, is what I would say. I'm not quite sure what a method of inquiry or contemplation means. D- does anyone want to be more specific, or, or is that good enough for now? It's good enough, yeah. So, absolutely, yeah. Um, that, to me, is the point. And uh, some, uh, of course, sometimes uh, the point can get lost because there's so much material and so much detail, etc. And who knows what someone just sort of glimpsing it from the outside might think. But to me, that's a- absolutely the point, uh, c- completely 100%. Yeah, uh, and may include lots of other good stuff on the way, but that's that's the main thing. Um, uh, so. Um, Lying out on the lawn earlier, my body and mind were full of knots and chaos, and everything felt wrong. An image came of another me, who was also my friend and also my lover. She picked up another different other me, who was lying on some different grass in much the same state of unhappy contractions my physical self was feeling. Okay, so I think I understand. Here this person is lying on the grass, feeling there's a lot of difficulty going on. An image comes that looks like herself, and but the image is on another piece of grass where another image of herself is lying, and the first image uh, uh, um, picks up picks up the the image of herself. You understand? It, it's it's not that complicated, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I'll call these two other me's psyche. I'm not sure if there's an asterisk there, but uh, I don't see anything that's right. Okay, I'll call these two other me's psyche the landscape they were in as well. When we use this word, a lot of the words we use just to really keep you guys on their to- on your toes. Uh, a lot of them have double meanings, and they're used in different ways. <laughs> so the word psyche, we use to, to, to be interchangeable with soul, you know, but we also use it to mean image. Okay, so in this case, uh, th- she's using the word psyche to mean image. Uh, 
And the image here is two selves, both of which look like me, and the landscape. And that's, that's the image, and so it's Psyche. Um, I'll call these two other me's Psyche, the landscape they were in as well. The friend-lover me picked up the lying down one tenderly, then threw her violently down onto some jagged rocks. She picked her up and threw her down repeatedly until every one really touches me until, until every one of the thrown down me's bones were shattered. I, the physical one lying on the guy house lawn, felt my energy body become the stage in which this all played out. So it was happening between them, those two other me's, but also to me and also inside of me. As I watched the scene unfolding, the physical and energetic knots and chaos I'd arrived with loosened and calmed. It's not in the object. It's not in what the mind will, the first reaction to the object. Hang out, little bit of trust, listen, feel, see what happens. If the mind jumps in too quick, gosh, then I'm going to start self-harming or whatever it is, or go psychotic, but I'm a splitting personalities. There's now three of me. One of them is obviously a, a violent, raging psychopath, and the, uh, <laughs> and the other's just a uh, thank you, and the other's just a neurotic mess or, or whatever it is. Um, is this all just mind? You know, if I, this is partly why energy, body, sensitivity. When we talk about the node of soul making, one of the nodes is an image, an imaginal image brings soul making. Partly implicit in that is bring all the sensitivity. Uh, in as much sensitivity and delicacy of awareness uh, in, into being, into relationship as, as you can because that's where you'll feel can I do this? Is this right? Should I follow this? You feel it in the body you feel it in the soulfulness you feel it in exactly what, what, what's being talked about here Yeah, this mind we've been indoctrinated in so many ways and, and some of that indoctrination isn't, we're not even conscious of it. It happens, uh, it happens in our mind in a, in, a, in a subconscious way. Anyway. Um, as I watched the scene unfolding, the physical and energetic knots and chaos I'd arrived with loosened and calmed. The more violent it got, the calmer I felt, and my energy started flowing more freely. I loved it. I loved it. And I breathed appreciation for that bellows fanning the flames of the scene, keeping it alive. So again, if I just extrapolate a bit, um, uh, intuitively, this person found a way to, to, remember I was talking about attunement and kind of lingering, and it was, in this case, through the that it felt to feel like a bellows, and coming into the relationship with the image, in this case, through the breath. Now, I wouldn't necessarily have given that as a formulaic answer, but, but the person found it intuitively, physically. It was like, oh, this is, this is part of the tuning. This is part of the sustaining and the lingering of what's soul-making here. Who would have predicted that? Maybe it works every time, maybe it doesn't. But one is, again, opportunistic with as much openness, sensitivity, receptivity, uh, facets of one's being um, present and aware and receptive, ready, willing to be active, willing to be receptive. Yeah? And and then magic can happen. Uh, I love them, I, and I breathe appreciation for them, and my breath became like bellows, fanning the flames of the scene, keeping it alive. It felt very personal, like who they were and what they were doing was meant just for me, and it is, it was. And the gift of it <coughs> made me nearly cry in appreciation. There was an intimacy between us, me and the image, such that when the lunch bell rang and I opened my eyes, I felt I was kissing a lover goodbye. However, the image has lingered. I emerged into, in quotes, this lunchtime at Gaia House reality, but I have not left the image behind, or rather it has not left me. 
it still feels very close and I can see it every time I blink or close my eyes. It's like I'm walking in two worlds. The imaginal one is somehow affecting this one, leaking into it, so that Gaia House and the retreat and all my anxieties and preoccupations are smoothed around the edges through having the image beside, inside, all around me like this. Our love, mine with the image, blesses everything else. <coughs> Can you say anything about walking into, in two worlds like this, interweaving, quote, this world with the imaginal realm? Um, uh, again, I, it's the kind, all, all, not all the details necessary, but all this kind of thing is, is the kind of thing I would expect in time. And you could say that this, uh, this uh, sense of, if you like, parallel worlds or realms uh, that we uh, that sort of have mirrors of ourselves and of this world is just one level of world, uh, which you know will will share. So that tree exists in all the worlds, uh, but at different levels. There are different levels of worlds, or planes of existence, or realms. Um, so I would expect this kind of thing. Often at times it doesn't happen until a little further on, but, but there's no real linear order in this. So I would absolutely expect it. Um, it gives uh, immediately, you know, with that you can hear, and in the very idea, in the very concept, in the very sense of it, there's all this dimensionality. This world is suddenly uh, just uh, has all this implicit the, the dimension uh, what that does world and the sense of self sense of and care and sacredness it's, it's beyond priceless um, that as an idea, you will find that, uh, you'll find it in mystical Kabbalah, someone referred to that, you'll find it in um, some, some Islamic mysticism, this idea of sort of levels of worlds. Uh, you'll you get it in, in, uh, in Buddha Dharma as well, talk about other worlds, other realms of being, the Deva realm, the, this, this realm, that realm, etc. The person isn't asking, is there a danger here? No, there's no danger. There's absolutely no danger. There's nothing in here that at all hints of uh, get away from this world. This world is uh, this world is uh, not worth it. I'm off to that world. There's no escapism at all. There's nothing like that. It does something. It fills out the beauty, the dimensionality, the sacredness, the poetry, the love, the eros for this world. Um, it's something, I don't know what to say other than just trust it, feel its beauty. The more, you know, there, there will be eros for this because tremendous beauty here and how much it's touched the being. And because we love eros and, and beauty and all of that, you're going to want to linger with that sense. Sometimes it will come up very vividly for a long period of time. Sometimes as a saying, I can't remember now when I was saying or in relation to what, but, um, uh, it, you can bring it up deliberately, or it's just a hint, just the, just the echoes of that experience. But, but those echoes, those little touches, those moments affect our sense of this world. And we can, we can bring that back deliberately, uh, just for a moment or two, and it could be anywhere. You could be sitting on a bus or what, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a formal practice. Or it might just come by itself, but it's, it's, it's in the repeats and those moments and those little tinctural sort of uh, exposures and in the way we let them seep out. So in the note here, um, uh, I can't find it in the image, but anyway, it was seeping out into the world. Um, uh, so it will, letting it seep out into the world, into the sense of self, into the sense of others, into the sense of uh, not just the self right now, but also the narrative of my life. You understand? 
it's okay. Remember, we're not shutting out narrative. We're not shutting out self in these practices. This kind of sense, and, and, and what does it do when I then consider um, my, my uh, death or the difficulty of my past or my problems or whatever, when I see it in the context of this multidimensional cosmos? Ma- huge. Another word, we, don't, we haven't used it so much, but this, is, this would be a, also an example of a cosmopoesis, in a way. Um, there's an image, and that image begins, uh, b- because of the, 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 the way that it's working um, in the soul and in the psyche, it starts to affect the self-sense, it starts to affect, uh, obviously there's, there's an image there, so the image is already impregnated with soul, and then that seeps out into the very perception of the world. And we talk about cosmopoesis, meaning poesis is just a fancy Greek word for um, kind of artistic creation, like poetry, like writing poetry. So poesis. Um, Cosmopoesis means world-making, world-creating, or world-discovering, cosmos-creating and discovering. And when an image becomes alive, Sometimes it comes alive in a way that it starts to spread to this world, and and same world. The trees out there, lunch is at uh, dinner is at five thirty. That everyone's here, same world, different world. Cosmopoesis. We've this world has been recreated through the power of the soul-making dynamic, through the through the uh, tinctural power of that particular image and it's spread out into the land, into the grass, into the sky, into the, do you understand? So that would be another another word. Um, yeah, that's very, very beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, okay, so... Um, uh, Quite sure how to which to choose. Um, <laughs> can emptiness be imaginal? Yes. Um, does the person who wrote this want to say a bit more about their sense or what they might have been glimpsing or wondering about? It, it they don't have to. I could say something perhaps, but yeah, can. Yeah, very good. So Karen's saying sometimes it's it's all a bit much to do imaginal practice, which is something we should have said on the opening morning, but we didn't, but we said it this morning. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't want to go bonkers with it, you know. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's a bit much, and we need, we need, so we could say uh, imaginal practice is skillful fabricating, and uh, what we want sometimes is skillful unfabricating. So Samadhi practice, metta practice, emptiness practices are all unfabricating. They all quieten the perceptual, they quieten perception, whether it's uh, regular conventional perception or imaginal perception. So it's really important to kind of go between those uh, those modes. Really, really important. Um, in all kinds of ways, and, and that movement can be very fluid, as we've touched on, etc. So sometimes Karen uh, finds that and then goes to some kind of emptiness practice or contemplation and then finds at times that the emptiness itself uh, becomes imaginal. Um, so there's a couple of, there's actually many ways this can happen. You and I have kind of thing. So let's say one's working with, um, actually, if, if you don't mind me sharing something from an interview. So I can't remember what it was. We were working with one of your, particular figural images once and then it faded and there was just the emptiness and there was a lot of bliss with that and and you just kind of dissolved in that and it was lovely and I said something like that's that's super and there's another option which is uh, not to let yourself dissolve so much and let let the self 
in other words, um, step back a little bit and see the self in relationship with this emptiness. Yeah, and and by doing that, it's possible that a relationship comes between the emptiness and the self, and the emptiness starts to feel it starts to gain personhood in a in a way, and be in relationship to to the self, and the self too becomes an imaginal self. Does this make sense? Yeah. So that's a possibility, and then once kind of steering more pure emptiness practice and the quietening of fabrication back into something more imaginal. So it's not better or worse again, but I would I would be considering things like, oh, does it always tend to that dissolution thing and a kind of dissolving bliss thing? And if it does, um, then it might be good to you know explore something different. If it just happens by itself, that's really fine. If it always keeps happening that the emptiness fills with stuff, then again, then I might think, okay, how can I keep it a more pure emptiness practice and go deeper with that? Yeah, yeah so that we could we could talk about how to do that, but we won't right now because. Uh, um, but yeah that's one that's one of the ways that e- the sense of emptiness itself becomes an object and that object there is it becomes a be- if you love emptiness it becomes a beloved object and then there's a way that that can, that can have an erotic relationship with that and if if um if you preserve the self sense a little bit as two two you know with the two-ness between them the separateness then uh then that kind of thing is possible and all kinds of things can ensue from that does it yeah. 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 Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. So Karen's saying. So. So is that a legitimate way to deliberately enter imaginal practice? Is via some kind of emptiness, or let's say via some kind of quietening fabrication? Absolutely. And so you'll find that in classically the way Buddhist Tantra is taught is exactly that. You do the emptiness and then you you do your visualizations or your deity yoga or whatever. Um, we're a little more fluid, but I- it's definitely definitely possible. So any of those practices, because they fabricate less, they tend to loosen things. Now if I go too deep, everything goes quiet. The, the imaginative faculty, everything, all perception will just go quiet. So it depends. Sometimes you can go deep and you can come out. Sometimes you can go just a little bit if your intention is to do uh, more imaginal. Um, but yeah, that, that doing that just quietens things, but it also loosens things. It makes, I used to use this phrase, uh, don't proceed until everything has become liquid. It's an alchemical maxim. And emptiness will do that. But also so will samadhi and so will metta. So you, you dip in and it, it loosens things. And then in that looseness, some, something can, uh, can, can arise. Yeah. So it's uh, totally valid. Yeah. Um, there's one more possibility. Uh, I'll just mention it. I've talked about it before, so I'll just remind um, that, you know, for many people who love the path and love practice and love Buddha Dharma and love the, uh, the, 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 the promise of emptiness and the teachings of emptiness, even when I don't even understand it or love whatever glimpses they have, um, and start t- to practice with emptiness, or or even aspire to practice to some degree with emptiness. Emptiness or the unfabricated or whatever, there is eros for that. Okay, I I I want that. I want to know it. I I want to move towards it, uh, and one loves it, and uh, so it becomes emptiness itself, uh, or the idea of emptiness or the idea of the unfabricated becomes. An uh, an erotic imaginal object, but again, with that, what else will happen? The self will get involved because it's not just object, and it's not just other self as well. So the self as practitioner, as one who aspires, as one who's moving towards um, that realization or that mystical knowing, as one who is um, supported by, borne along, nourished by the. Tr- that self and and uh, and even the tradition all this starts to become imaginal does we're talking about fantasies of the path and, and that sort of thing does it make sense 
Yeah. So that's another way emptiness can become imaginary. It's more in a more, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, comprehensive way or something. Yeah. Okay. I have a technical, practical, and psychological and pedagogical question about the distinction between erotic or soulful desire and craving. <laughs> In my own practice and the work I do with others, I find universally that both flowers share the same root. So I guess both erotic desire and craving share the same root. It just needs trusting and following back down the stem or the onion needs a few layers peeled, to mix metaphors. The sacred jewel is always there either way. So my question is, in practice, what is the scope of usefulness or effectiveness of this distinction between eros and craving? Uh, the two things that I see are, one, labeling a desire as craving raises a flag that signals attention needs to be paid to the subjective pole, has it collapsed and tightened around the object, how is the integrity of the energy body, etc. And two, if that way of working is beyond the abilities of the practitioner in that moment, then a new object should be chosen. Or is that too binary? Any clarification is much appreciated. Mm. Um, so, uh, do they, I think for simplicity, yeah, I'd just maybe agree, they have the same stem. So craving, craving and eros uh, may well share the same stem. They're stimulated by the same, you could say, they're stimulated by the same movement. You know, we could... Uh, we could actually make a, a sort of very fundamental postulate and say um, something, the soul loves soul-making. And it sounds like, okay. But actually a, a, a tremendous amount follows just, just from that. Um, so the soul loves soul-making, and eros is a part of soul-making. So the soul is a natural inclination and movement to soul-making and to eros and to um, impregnating things with its eros so that they can bloom, uh, so that psyche can bloom, so that logos can get stretched, all of that. N you could put that as more fundamental than, um, uh, you know, as, as just playing with ideas, we could put that as a more fundamental idea than, um, I don't know, attachment theory uh, or evolutionary theory about what's operating in a human being or by going to argue about realities but what's what might be quite interesting to actually put that as real really fundamental this is what souls want and then what follows from that and what does it imply for developmental psychology which has very different set of assumptions um, etc um, but yeah for now for simplicity we could say the, the, the root is the same what happens is we cannot sustain that, basically because of all, all kinds of reasons, but often because we're not taught how, and and certain we're we're indoctrinated in a way that we don't we don't have these words, we don't have a word for eros, uh, we we just have words for craving or or, or whatever. Um, there's all kinds of taboos. There's all kinds of ideas about what's real and not real, and limits on this or that, so that actually it becomes very, very hard for many reasons to uh, allow the soul its love of soul-making and allow it to do that. And all kinds of uh, ideas or um, energetic habits of uh, constriction or short-circuiting or collapsing or non-attention or non-care, it takes so much, so many conditions need to be there to actually allow this soul love of soul making to actually uh, blossom in soul making. Um, but we could say, and, and one of the things that will happen when it doesn't is it becomes craving. The eros becomes craving. Yeah? So where I would maybe expand a little bit, um, so 
So two things I see, the person has written, labeling a desire as craving raises a flag that signals attention needs to be paid to the subjective pole. In other words, to, to he over here, has it collapsed and tightened around the object? How is the integrity of the energy body, etc.? Um, I would probably point back to more all of the elements, so that um, uh, particularly rarefication, you know, uh, um, some of the ones that are more uh, about the object as well. I mean, in a way, there's not really a difference, but but so it could be anything, anything at all, uh, in, in in that sense. Um, but yeah, a, a, a good working assumption, even if we take away the assumption that they're coming from the same root, and, and some people might, oh, that's a bit much for me. Um, I'm happy with it, but some people might be a bit much. And, and say something, okay, but practically speaking, um, uh, most if not all craving can be turned into eros and be helped to become eros and uh, and open out into everything that that, and most eros can quite easily collapse into craving. So the question as a practitioner becomes, oh, am I on the lookout for that? Do I recognize when that kind of thing happens? And and do I have some things that I can do? And and so uh, one thing might be, yeah, all all the elements of the lattice might be relevant. You know, any of them. Another thing, and I've said this. Um, but it but it feels important and it's relevant is uh, so I'll say it again I've said it on other other retreats but um, uh, so it relates to a little bit what we were talking about earlier in this session um, here's the beloved other and there may be an enormous amount of eros there so easily um, all my attention and devotion and eros all my attention devotion and eros goes towards the other. And I uh, unwittingly am not allowing the self sense to be caught up in the soul-making process and, and not allowing the self itself to become an object of eros. Yeah? So if I, thi I think of this as a bit like, um, I don't know, some kind of, um, uh, let's, let's say some kind of um, s circular tray or, or something like that. And um, and the eros is is all kind of flowing over there. The, the water's flowing all over there. It's just flowing there. And it's, I if it's just flowing over there, it's going to tip the balance of this tray, right? It's just in the object. If I allow, and some people, it's, it doesn't even occur to them that actually uh, the, the self can also be seen as divine. I'm so taken by the divinity of that beloved object. Um, and the whole thing's precarious because it's all about the object. If I can then uh, allow, and this, this may take some work, it may just be a matter of including the self in the awareness and remembering to do that. If I can allow the self to be caught up in, in the, in, in the soul-making, in the imaginal, and actually allow the self to become uh, uh, an erotic but beloved as well as the object at the same time, then what happens to this tray or fountain or whatever it is, um, is it's th the water's flowing both both sides and, and it's more balanced. It doesn't it doesn't capsize and uh, you understand? And then if we extend that also what again what will happen related to some the questions before, um, if I allow it it will also spread to the world. If there's eros some beloved other, self will become also I recognize that the divinity and dimensionality of self, self becomes uh, erotically beloved to me. And and not with all images and not always immediately, but then, then that can also, I, I go out of the meditation, I open my eyes and, hey, just hang out there. How does the world look now? When you've had a particularly beautiful or touching image, check out the sense of self and the sense of world. You walk out into the garden. How how does the world seem? So that's another way in which this water actually wants to spread in all directions. So and then and then the this fountain tray thing becomes much more balanced. Okay, it's not a great <laughs> <laughs> But do you understand the point I'm making? Yeah? One more thing that can again become uh caught up and should eventually become caught up in 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 the erotic soul making process is the eros itself. To say, 
self, other world, and then also the elements of the self, the aspects of the self, including the eros. So at some point, all this eros, whose eros is it? And one looks through the soul-making lenses, through the imaginal lenses, and one sees it was my eros, of course, but it's also divine. It's like I'm somehow, I don't know words we could use, the channel or, or the God's eros, the divine eros, the eros of the Buddha nature is manifesting through me. And the eros itself, my eros, becomes an erotic for me. You understand? All this is helping that fountain tray to become m- more rich, more full, more balanced, able to tolerate more flow and, 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 and larger, etc. Uh, but yet, in terms of the second point here, some, you know, th- there are people I, I've worked with or, or known or people who ask me, I want to do imaginal practice. And, and I, my sense is that you're just not ready. You know, there's some other health is mental health issues or all kinds of things or a person just isn't ready like someone asked about um uh, practicing with someone as an imaginal uh, erotic other you know um sometimes the person doesn't have the practice wherewithal to to do this and it's just it keeps just getting rarefied and they have no sense of something that's not rarefied for instance or they can't really they don't really have their energy body or they can't tolerate a lot of emotion it's like it's probably not that good an idea to, to, to try and practice. Yeah, y- in which case, yeah, maybe another object if one's trying to do that. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Um. Uh. <coughs> Catherine spoke about relating to one's own body as the beloved and an object of eros <laughs> as part of the energy body practice. Could you say more about the fullness of this practice? <laughs> um, so one's own body as as the beloved and as object of eros. Um, so I'd probably want to hear more about what's prompting the question. Um, does the person want to say they don't have to? Because I can I can say probably quite a lot, but. Does they w- do they want to say? Uh, when when using the body as beloved, yeah, okay. Um, so Chris is saying um, that. Okay, so uh, Chris is saying that. Um, when trying to use the body as as object, as imaginal object and beloved others, or we could use the language of sensing the body with soul. Um, uh, some of the nose didn't really feel like they came alive. Um, so that's always going to happen with, with any object. You know, it's like there's, there's really a spectrum when we talk about fully imaginal and not. And sometimes you don't want to get too hung up about that. You know, the thing that I was thinking of when I, when I got this note was... Um, I go back to something I said the other day, which is, uh, you know, sometimes what galvanizes and empowers imaginal practice is is that it we're dealing with something that really matters to us. Okay, so if I just choose an object and kind of like, oh well, I'll choose that. That's interesting. Let's see what happens. Um, it might be that in that moment of relating to it. It's actually fairly neutral object, and you can do things, and it becomes somewhat imaginal, etc. Um, but uh, there's not r- there's not uh, a kind of soul need at that point for it to become fully imaginal. So often, again, we go back to dukkha and soul making when there's some kind of pain. Uh, either physical pain or painful relationship with the body, whether it's about, oh, I'm dying or it's ugly or or whatever it is, Um, uh, then there's enough in the crucible. Uh, And I still have to make it, you know, crucibilic or whatever that word is. Um, uh, But I have to go through, like what's, I have to really feel the the, the pain of the issue. Or it might be the, the other thing that I'm just, 
suddenly just struck by the miracles of, of body and, and gratitude to my body or, or whatever it is. But again, there's enough charge to start with to sort of galvanize a process. Um, and then, then there's maybe more likelihood that, that the, the nodes fill out that way. Uh, I mean, it still might it still might happen happen the other way. It might. Um, I'm not sure what else to suggest, but but is that okay for now? Yeah. Okay. Um, I've been trying to find a female representation of the qualities that Eros stands for. To have a female archetype, goddess, or whatever figure would feel very empowering. Do you know of any female manifestations of this desire, longing, passion? Um, uh, um, Maybe we had a Tara statue that was... um, uh, I, I can't think of anything straight away, but you know, there's Aphrodite in the Western canon, there's there's all kinds of goddesses if you look in, in actual Tantra. So uh Ragarati is uh, a goddess of the Guya Samaja Tantra. Um and Raga m- means uh, de- desire or lust. So that's that's her essence, you know. Um you you can find these. Um I would be two two things about that I, I think you know when Jung, I don't know if it was he that introduced the word archetype. Certainly, he made it popular. Um, for Jung, in his in his uh, psychology, an archetype was not a form. So Aphrodite is not an archetype, uh, or Tara or Kuan Yin. They're not archetypes. An archetype is a forming principle, which means it, it itself doesn't have a form, but it tends to shape this or that, including human beings uh, through its influence. So it's a, it's a, you understand? It's a, it's a kind of program, if you like, the, that's too, too tight. Uh, uh, it's, it's a, it's a style of forming. It's an intelligence that that forms things in certain ways. What that means is that we look around the world or you go to a movie or you read a novel or you walk down the street and you see someone or you have a friend or you have a teacher, or you have whatever it is, and you see someone, and they are manifesting a certain archetype. They're probably manifesting a mix of archetypes. But it may be that it's just as powerful and transformative t- to start tuning into that kind of thing. You know, wha- uh, this person, or that movie star, whatev- whatever it is, you know, and that character in the novel, speaks to me in in this way and he she they embody uh manifest something that that attracts me you know and to go via that attraction what am i attracted to i'm attracted to that i'm attracted to let's say the divinity the goddess or or whatever coming through them um so that then you're you're kind of more at following your own your own uh, attraction uh with with it um but there are but there are figures uh yeah that you that you could choose um I'm not sure what else to say about that at this point um in 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 a way, oftentimes these things are more powerful when they come either as images for us, spontaneous images for ourselves. They they will have more power than, you know, someone like Tara or Ragarati or whoever, um, or or as I say, w- they come because we see them in someone else. We and we start to really appreciate appreciate how that person moves, how that how that person. Some something in their being emanates something, communicates something that um, that touches us. That uh, and again, it might be outside of the box of our usual sensibilities and sort of okaynesses. So we have to kind of be on on the alert 
for it, for what doesn't quite fit. Um, and and for, for something to come up spontaneously again, there, there may need to be uh, a certain amount of um, emotion or even wish for that to happen or distress that it's not happening or frustration. All those kinds of emotions can function as, as kind of sometimes function as something that's more uh, that can generate something. Um, so you could try you could try both, you know, but there there may well be figures. The Guya Samaja Tantra has has uh, Ragarati. Please, yeah. Right, right, yeah, yeah, okay. So yeah, yeah, good, thank you. So Yuka saying um, the word eros has a lot of masculine connotations and it makes it hard, it feels hard for her then to integrate it into into her being um, and relate to it. So, um, is, there, is there a word that you prefer? Try a Sanskrit or Pali word, or oh, like Raga, Raga. Uh, so Ragarati, this goddess, is is Raga. You know, for instance, um, It may be that the word is important. It may be less about the word and more about getting glimpses and just trusting what glimpses you have, even if it feels like, okay, but surely some of what I'm feeling is not what they're talking about. That's fine. Let's go, I go back to what I said about trusting, just getting a process going by trusting, and you'll you'll more and more differentiate in in your own time between the different kinds of desire or, or whatever we want to call them. Um, uh, but you'll know it more from the inside and from those glimpses and, and, and do it like that. Um, but, it, but it might be that you look around you, you know, at, uh, in this case, at, at women who seem to embody or express something that's, uh, that attracts you, that, that, that you feel has that, maybe, yeah. I think we probably need to stop, right? Because it's almost 10 to 6. So, sorry I didn't get to all the questions here. Um, Should we have a bit of quiet to end? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.